small country rural church, much like ours, that got a new pastor once. And this new pastor wanted to get to know the folks, so he made it a point to go around to everybody's home and visit with them and kind of get to know them some. So he goes to the home of one of the men in the church who was known as one of the most spiritually mature people in the church, a respected leader in the church. He goes to this man's home. This man was a farmer. And he finds the, the man out in the field plowing the fields with his two mules. And so the, uh, past, the new pastor and this farmer begin a conversation. And they're sort of talking about the church and everything. And the pastor's telling the, the wise old farmer how he would like to get to know the church and know the people and know what makes it tick. And the wise old farmer said to the, to the pastor, he said, if you want to know this church, then I can tell you what you need to know right now. He says, this church is a whole lot like these two mules of mine. You see, these two mules of mine will work all day long. In the hot sun, they will pull this plow six days a week. And when I put them in the barn tonight, I'll give them a little bit of grain, I'll give them some hay to sleep on, I'll give them some water, and they'll be ready to do all of this over tomorrow. And they will do this six days a week. They are hard-working mules. But there's one thing that these mules do not know how to do. They do not know how to reproduce themselves. And the wise old farmer said to the pastor, that is the same problem with our church as well. We're a hard-working church pastor, but we do not know how to reproduce ourselves. And I fear that the same problem with that country church is the same problem with ours and with thousands of other churches like ours, is that we are diligent about the work of the kingdom of God, but we do not know how to go about reproducing ourselves. We turn this morning to a new chapter, the story of Acts, chapter 13, but really we're turning more than just to a new chapter, we're turning to a whole new section of the Acts story. Because beginning today, in chapter 13, everything changes in Acts. Everything from this point on is about one thing and one thing only, world evangelization. World evangelism. Taking the gospel to those who have not heard, those who are different, those who are of a different culture and a different language. Because you see, beginning here in chapter 13, the church finally gets it. They finally get the fact that they're here for a purpose. And that purpose is to be intentional and purposeful about taking this life-saving gospel to those who have not heard. The church has not gotten that yet. But they get it here in chapter 13 and they won't lose it through the rest of the story of Acts. So everything from this point on is about missions. It's very fitting for us to come to this point in the Acts story today as we begin our missions focus leading up to Lottie Moon and everything like that. It's very fitting for us to be at this point in the story of Acts because starting here in chapter 13, everything from this point on is about missions and world evangelization. The church now gets it. They're here on a mission. And that mission is to be intentional about taking the gospel to those who have not heard the gospel. Now that's not to say that the church has not taken the gospel to people who haven't heard before. There's been tremendous salvation that has occurred in Jerusalem. There's been salvation outside of Jerusalem. But all of that has been incidental. Persecution would break out in Jerusalem. Christians would start getting beaten up and thrown in jail. And the other Christians would flee. And with them, they'd take the gospel and tell it to people. Or Peter would be on his rooftop praying and and an angel would come to him and say, go to this guy's house and tell him about Jesus. So the gospel has been spoken. But... Until this point, the church has not been intentional and purposeful about 
their spreading of the gospel. All that will change here in chapter 13. So we're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 12. And then we're going to spend all of our time this morning in the first three verses of chapter 13. Let me just go ahead and read those. Beginning from chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, or a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I wonder if you'll pause with me right now and we'll pray. Father, we pray that just as this Antioch church laid hands on Saul and Barnabas, you would lay hands on us this morning. And you would burden us for the salvation of the lost. You would burden us for the need of worldwide revival. And I pray that not a person would leave this place this morning without that burden for the lost people all around us. I pray this in the name of the One who was burdened beyond all of us for the lost, Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll be looking at these first three verses in chapter 13, mostly this morning, and these first three verses are really verses that have so much teaching in them that I I think I could easily preach four messages from these three verses alone. But we're going to do all of this in one message this morning. So there's going to be some things that I, quite frankly, skip over and leave out. Some teaching that's important here, but it's not Luke's main point, so we're going to kind of skip over that. And what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to have, we're going to look at four points, four main things that Luke wants us to see in these three verses. And like we said earlier, everything from this point on is all about missions, world evangelization. So all four points have to do with missions this morning. And so our, you see the points in your bulletin handout. They're, we're going to look at this morning the, um, the means of missions, the preparation for missions, the choice for missions, and the object of missions. I don't think I'll put them in that order. But let's just begin here in verse 1. And we're going to begin looking at the means for missions, the means for world evangelization. What is God's means for taking His gospel to those who haven't heard? God's means for doing that is His people, His church, right? God uses His people to take the gospel to those who haven't heard. God doesn't send His angels to proclaim the gospel to us. God doesn't give us dreams about the gospel and then we wake up and accept Jesus as our Savior. God can do that, and He has done that from time to time. But God's main means of taking His gospel to those who haven't heard are those who have heard and received it, right? We've seen this repeatedly in the Acts story. Uh, God sends an angel to Cornelius, and tells Cornelius to send for this guy Peter, and then he sends the angel to Peter to tell Peter what to say. He could have just sent the angel to Cornelius to tell him the gospel, but God doesn't do that. God sends Peter or Philip, right? The angel comes to Philip when he's in Samaria and says, you need to go down to Gaza and tell the gospel to this guy down there from Ethiopia instead of just sending the angel to tell him. So God has a way about him. His way is that the gospel is spread to those who haven't heard it 
by way of those who have heard it and received it. His church, in other words. And so Luke's focus here in the first verse is the church, the means of evangelism, or specifically the diversity in the means of evangelism. Let's look at at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, um, and Saul. And so Luke gives us this list of five leaders here, five leaders within the church at Antioch. And two of them we know, Barnabas and Saul, right? We're real familiar with Barnabas and Saul. But then three others we've never heard of before, Simeon, Lucius, and this guy, Manan. Now, these three characters, what sort of role are they going to play in the rest of the Acts story? I know we we haven't studied chapter 13 yet. But what role do they play? Because I know you've read chapter 13 recently, right? Because we're preaching through Acts, the story of Acts. So you've read Acts chapter 13 and beyond. What sort of role do Simeon, Lucius, and Manaean play in the rest of the story of the church? None that we know of. Luke never mentions them again. So why would Luke, who is a good storyteller, why would he go to the trouble of telling us about these three individuals and then go into the effort of telling us a little bit about them if they're not going to play a role in the rest of the story? I think that Luke's purpose here is this. Luke wants to show us the diversity within the early church, the diversity, specifically the diversity of leadership. Let's look at these five individuals. First of all, we're told about Barnabas. We know Barnabas. We've heard about Barnabas before. Barnabas was from Cyprus, which meant that he was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was from this place called Cyprus. Cyprus was sort of like the Bahamas of the ancient world. It was an island nation in the Mediterranean, island climate. You know, it's kind of the place you want to go for vacation. And so here's this Greek-speaking Jew, this island boy, this surfer type. And then we have Saul. We know Saul. Saul was as Jewish as it gets. He was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. He was trained to the highest degree of the Jewish law. In our day, he would have been a Jewish Ph.D., He was as Jewish as it got. So here you have this Hebrew Jew. You have a Greek-speaking island boy Jew. Then you have this guy, Simeon. What do we know about Simeon? We know that he was called Niger. Now, what does that word Niger mean? If you look down to the footnote at the bottom of your Bible, you see that Niger means black or dark. So what does that tell us about uh, Simeon? It tells us that Simeon was a black guy. He was from Central Africa or maybe Southern Africa. He was a dark-skinned person. And here he is in the leadership of the Antioch church. Here's a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hebrew Jew, and a very dark-skinned African. All of them in leadership in the church. Then we have this guy Lucius. Lucius was from Cyrene. Cyrene was a Roman province on, uh, on North Africa. Present-day Libya, we hear about Libya every day in the news now. So Cyrene was present-day Libya, which means that, that, that uh, Lucius was a North African. Now, North African people are dark-skinned as well. They are not as dark-skinned as Central African people, but that nevertheless, Lucius was still of a different race than was Barnabas and Saul and Simeon. And then we have this guy, Manaean. Now, Manaean is described as a lifelong friend of Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, that's not the Herod that we just saw in chapter 12 that was uh, killed and eaten with worms. This is a different Herod. 
this was his uncle. And so, this guy Manan is described as a lifelong friend of that Herod. Now, the word that Luke uses, that, this translated lifelong friend, or your translation may be something different than that, but the word that Luke uses, translated lifelong friend, literally, that word means suckled by the same breast. So, what would happen in those days is uh, someone of, of high importance, a queen, or someone of high social standing, royalty, they would never lower themselves to feed their own baby, right? So they would do like, similar to the Egyptian princes did with Moses, they would have a wet nurse, they would suckle their baby, they would feed their baby for them. And so this guy, Manan, literally was raised by the same wet nurse as Herod the king. Now what that tells us is that this man, Manan, was of extreme social standard, extreme social position. This guy was not a normal, uh, socially, he was not a normal person. He was at the upper echelon of society, of royalty. Maybe um, we could compare him to, uh, I don't know, maybe Chelsea Clinton, right? Someone who was raised in that environment of the White House. And now they, because of that, they hold a tremendous social position because of it. So look at the mix of people that we have leading the church in Antioch. It's an incredibly diverse mixture of people. All different races, all different social classes, all different backgrounds, all different cultures, different languages, and they're here mixed together leading the church of Antioch. The diversity of the early church. Now please understand, when I talk about the diversity of the early church, I'm using that word diversity differently than you hear it today. We hear about diversity all the time today. And what we usually hear about diversity, people usually mean diversity of thought. Diversity of ideas. Diversity of opinion. And so most people believe today that all opinions are equally uh, valid. All opinions are equally true. Diversity of thought. And that's not the biblical understanding of diversity within the church. The early church was not diverse in thought or diverse in theology. But they were diverse in skin color. And they were diverse in background. And they were diverse in culture. We could look to the end of the book of Romans and look at that long list of people that Paul talks about there and just count how many races of people he includes in the Roman church. And the same thing that we see here. The early church was diverse in its background and through that diversity, God is giving the early church strength because that is a biblical principle. Diversity of people within God's body bring its strength, not weakness, right? Paul teaches us this several times. Three times he uses the analogy of a human body to describe the body of Christ. For example, in your uh, sermon notes there, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he's describing the body of Christ and he says, one is like the eye and one is like the ear and one is like the foot and one is like the hand. And so if you didn't have this guy, where would the hand be? If you didn't have this guy, where would the sense of smell be? If you didn't have this guy, where would the sense of sight be? And so the diversity of people brings strength to the early church. Again, not diversity of thought or diversity of ideas, but diversity of background, diversity of culture, diversity of of appearance. You see, the early church looked just like the culture that it came out of. The culture of Antioch was an incredibly diverse culture, just like ours, by the way. And the church looked just like the culture that it existed in in terms of its appearance, its background, its cultural differences. How does that compare to the church today? 
We live in a culture that's just as diverse as the Antioch culture. But by and large, the church does not look like the culture that we live in, does it? Over here, you'll have a white church. And there'll be exceptions. There'll be some people in that church of different races, some maybe a Hispanic or an Asian and, and an African American or two. But that is a white church. It worships the white way. It's led by whites. Over here, you'll have a black church. And there'll be some exceptions in that church too. Maybe some white folks in there. Maybe a couple of of Asians in there. But that is a black church led by blacks worshiping the black way. You see how unlike our culture we look? We look less like our culture and we look less like the Antioch church than we look like just a group of people who have similar backgrounds and similar appearances who just sort of get together to worship God. And I think that God is setting a precedence for us here and in other places. He's saying to us, this was not my intention. We can look to places like Revelation 7, Revelation 19, and we'll see that for eternity, we will worship the Lamb of God among all tribes, tongues, languages, skin colors, and everything else. And yet we worship God here in ways that don't look just like that, do we? God intends for the diversity of people that He has created to add to the strength of the church, to add to the, to, especially to the strength of the leadership of the church. Now, we look around and we see exceptions to this, right? And I thank God for those exceptions. There are exceptions today. There are churches that are multicultural, multicultural in leadership and everything else. And I thank God for those exceptions. But by and large, I think we need to look at this passage and we need to pray that God would make His church look more like that church looked and more like the church is going to look for eternity. And then we need to be purposeful about it. Because you know what, folks? People of other cultures, they're not just going to come to us and say, hey, can we join you and worship with you? We need to be intentional about that and purposeful about that. And we need to be, need to be prayerful, praying that God would strengthen us in this way. So that's the first thing that we see here is the means of missions. And Luke is showing us very intentionally here, he's showing us that the means of missions in the early church was this diverse church that looked very much like the culture that it came out of. So that's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is the preparation for missions. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying. So we have three concepts there, praying, worshiping, and fasting. And there is a tremendous amount that we could say about all three of those things. But we don't have a tremendous amount of time. So let's talk for just a minute about the most significant of those three. The most significant would be fasting, because Luke mentions it twice. Let's talk for just a moment about fasting, the Christian principle of fasting. Fasting is what the early church did as they sent out Paul and Barnabas, as they chose Paul and Barnabas. And this isn't the first time we've seen the early church fasting. Chapter 2, we saw them again. Chapter 5, we see the early church engage in in this principle of Christian fasting in many occasions. And we'll see it again. Chapter 14, we'll see it again. And this, this idea of Christian fasting is something that was closely connected with what happens here in chapter 13, which is for the first time ever, the sending out of Christian missionaries. So in other words, what happens in Acts chapter 13 changes the world. 
doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's the gospel that changes the world, right? But in Acts chapter 13, for the first time, the church is intentional about sending out people for the purpose of the gospel. So Acts chapter 13 changes the world, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that fasting changed the world. Maybe if the early church didn't fast right here in chapter 13, maybe you and I wouldn't be here today. Fasting changed the world in this sense. So the early church is fasting. Why are they fasting? What are they fasting for? What do they gain from fasting? I think that today the principle of Christian fasting, I think that it has become so foreign to us, so alien to our thinking, that it is very difficult for us to relate to this anymore. Christian fasting is not, to most, to most Christians, it's not even like something your parents used to do. It's not even something that you knew your grandparents used to do. Maybe they did. But by and large, fasting has become so alien to us that we don't even, we don't even think about it. We don't even understand it and, and we don't engage in it. Now, the reason we don't do fasting, by and large, I think there's, there's really two main reasons that we don't do Christian fasting very much anymore. And I think the first is that it is so countercultural. It just it goes against the grain of everything that we're taught today. Because, you know what, we live in a culture that teaches you that you should not be deprived of anything. Your culture teaches you that, don't you? They tell you on, on every level that you are not to be deprived of something that you want. And that is ingrained in you. It is embedded into your thinking more deeply than you know that it is. If you doubt this, then just uh, think of what happens when uh, an electrical storm comes through and you, you lose electricity for a couple of hours. Not a lot of fun, is it? Right? And so being deprived of electricity for a couple of hours is something that disturbs you. Or if your internet connection goes down for a couple of hours, or your, your cable television goes down for a couple of hours, and you, you miss some primetime shows, right? You're deprived of something you didn't want to be deprived of, and your culture tells you that should not be. And so we go to places like Lowe's, and we spend thousands of dollars for things like generators so that we won't be deprived of something that we want, right? It is deeply embedded in you to not deprive yourself of something that you want. And then we think about this principle of Christian fasting, which is all about intentionally depriving ourselves of something that we want and need. Food. And that just goes against everything that's in us. You mean that I'm going to purposely deprive myself of food and not for the purpose of losing weight so that I look better, but for something else. And so it goes against our thinking. So I think that's one reason that, that we don't do Christian fasting very much, but I think the other reason is we don't understand it. The church doesn't teach it. And so it's lost on us as to what it's for. It's lost on us on, as to how to do it. It's lost on us as to what the purpose of doing it even is. And so even if we do try it, we're not sure if we succeeded or not because we don't know why we did it. Right? Am I, am I right? And so I think that, well, first of all, I'd like, I wish I could preach a whole message on fasting because it's simply too much to cover in this short amount of time. But let me just say this. One reason that fasting is difficult to understand is because there's more than one kind of fasting, there's more than one way to fast, and there's more than one purpose for fasting. 
And we see all of those in Scripture. And so sometimes I think we try to look at the principle of fasting, not understanding that there's one kind of fast done one way for one specific purpose and a different kind of fasting done a different way for a different purpose, and we get all confused about it. What we see here in Acts chapter 13 is one particular type of fasting for one particular purpose. And the type of fasting that we see here is a corporate fasting because we read here, Luke tells us, that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, I'm not going to go into the reasons behind this, but, but I, I take it to mean, when Luke says they were fasting, I take it to mean the church, not just the five leaders that he talk, just, just talked about. But I take him to mean all of the church was fasting and worshiping, right? And so they're, they're engaging in this corporate fast. Now, most of the time when we turn to the New Testament, we find that Jesus is talking about individual fasts. Um, but we find in the Old Testament a lot of examples of corporate fasting. We find another example here, another one in chapter 14 of, of corporate fasting, where the church came together as a body and fasted together. Now, why are they fasting, and what is the purpose of their fasting? One of the more common ways, or, or one of the more common purposes of fasting is what we see here. It is to gain spiritual discernment to gain spiritual insight when our prayers are coupled together with christian fasting then that has a way of increasing spiritual understanding of giving additional spiritual insight it's almost as though if we if we fast along with our prayers it's almost as though we've added a spiritual exclamation point onto our prayers or we've, we've added an underline. You know, when you, when you write somebody an email and you want to emphasize something, you underline it in the email or you make it bold or something? That's like fasting. When we fast along with prayers, it's, it's like adding emphasis. It's like saying to God, this is an urgent prayer and I urgently desire to hear from you. I urgently desire your answer. And so I'm adding to my prayer, I'm adding this fasting. And that's what the early church does here. They're about to embark on something unprecedented. There has never been a Christian missionary commissioned ever. And they're not quite sure how to do it. They don't know who to commission, where to send them, how they're supposed to support them, how this whole thing is going to work. They don't know any of this because it's never been done before. And so they're crying out to God, God, we need insight from you. And it's not enough just to pray for it. We're going to add an exclamation point to that prayer. We're going to add fasting to that prayer. And that's what we see happen. We see the same sort of thing in the Old Testament. When God's people are faced with an extreme difficulty, when they have a prayer that's an urgent prayer, they'll couple that together with fasting. We see, for example, in, in Ezra chapter 8. In Ezra chapter 8, what's going on here is Ezra is about to lead a group of, of people that have been exiled for 70 years. He's going to lead them back to Jerusalem and they're going to rebuild the temple. And you know what? They need God to help them. And so in Ezra chapter 8, we see that, that they fasted and implored God for this and He listened to our entreaty. Or we turn to Judges chapter 20. What we see going on in Judges 20 is that the tribe of Benjamin has sinned in a very grievous way. And the rest of Israel isn't quite sure how to deal with it. And so they implore God. They, they say, all the people of Israel went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted until the evening. And two verses later, God answers their prayer. So when we lift up prayers to God, coupled together with Christian fasting, it's as though we receive from God more spiritual insight. It's as though the ear of God is more inclined to us. Now, why is that? Why is that? Is it like 
Is it like we're going on a hunger, hunger strike and, and we're saying to God, God, I'm not going to eat until you answer my prayer? You know, kind of like a, a kid holding his breath. No. There's two reasons I think that fasting is taught to us as a Christian principle for lifting up to God urgent, urgent prayers. And the first reason is this. Fasting increases our spiritual sensitivity. Fasting sensitizes us spiritually. Remember last week we talked about the spiritual antennas going up? Fasting pricks your spiritual attention and it causes you to be more perceptive to the voice of God. Because you see, God, God communicates with us, right? His Spirit communicates with us. But what does His Spirit never do? His Spirit never shouts at you. God's never written across the sky what He wants us to know. Instead, when He communicates to us, it's a small voice, isn't it? And we've got to be paying attention to hear it. And fasting increases that attention. It sensitizes us to that. How? I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that there's a connection between your physical stomach and your spirit. I can't point you to a verse that shows you that. I can't explain exactly what that is. You've got to experience it. But there is a connection between your physical stomach and your spirit in such a way that when your physical stomach is empty for the purpose of hearing God, your spirit is more sensitive to what He has to say to you. And you know, I, th- I think that Scripture sort of hints at this all, through, all throughout. How often... How often are the things of God connected with food? Jesus is the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the Lord's Supper. Remember in Jeremiah where God told Jeremiah to eat the scroll? You remember the the living waters? Jesus is the living water. Over and over again we see this connection between what goes in our mouth and what comes to us spiritually. And so somehow there's a, there's a connection between your physical stomach so that when your physical stomach is empty for the purpose of hearing God, your spiritual ears are more attentive. And so that's the first thing that we see. The second reason that fasting increases our spiritual awareness, that fasting lifts to God this urgent sort of prayer, is because it's as, when we fast along with our prayers, it's as though we're saying to God, your ear is more important than food to me. Your ear is more important to me than food. Now, for some of us, that's saying a whole lot, isn't it? Food's important to all of us. This brother's rubbing his belly right here. Food's important to all of us. To some of us, it's really important. And so when we couple together fasting with prayers, it's as though we're saying to God, God an answer to this prayer is more important to me than food. That's how important missions was to the early church. It was more important to them that lost people be saved than they eat. I wonder how many meals we'd be willing to miss in order to see somebody in India Come to faith in Christ. Are you willing to miss three? 
If you are, then do it. If you're medically and physically able, do it. Don't just tell God, yeah, salvation of the lost is more important to me than food. Don't tell Him. James chapter 2 tells you what? Faith without works is dead faith. In the same way, if the salvation of the lost, if worldwide revival is more important to you than food, then show Him. Because you know what? There is no such thing as an obedient Christian who does not fast. Did you know that? No such thing as an obedient Christian that does not fast. Now, there are those who medically are not able to fast, physically not able to fast from food. You have to be a little bit more creative and find something else that you can fast from. But the New Testament tells us repeatedly, it never commands us to fast, but it tells us that we are expected to. Matthew 6, Luke 6, Jesus says, when you fast, don't do it this way like hypocrites, do it this way. Matthew 9, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples are fasting? Jesus says they don't fast because the bridegroom is with them right now. But the day is coming when the bridegroom won't be with them and then they will fast. Our Master fasted. Forty days. Jesus fasted. We're not better than our Master, are we? And so this is how important it was to the early church It was more important to them than food. So that's the preparation for missions. Next we see the object for missions. Look here in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now this is very subtle in the text, but it's here nonetheless. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. In other words, Barnabas and Saul, as they go out to engage in world evangelism, They are not serving the church in Antioch. They're serving God. Their service or the object of their service is God, not the church, not the people in Antioch, not the congregation, not the ones that are sending them money. Their service is to God and not to people. That's what Luke is showing us. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Is that service is to be rendered to God and not to His church. We come together to serve God, not to serve His church. The distinction may be very subtle to you. You may be thinking, that's just playing with words. Because to you it may seem like serving the church is serving God. It is not. The church is to be about the business of God. But we must carefully make a distinction within ourselves. Our service is given to God and not to people, even people who are in the church. Does the Bible teach us this? It teaches us this all over the place. We see the phrase you know, over and over, serve the Lord with gladness. We see that sort of thing all over the place. But I do believe the Bible specifically teaches us this in places like 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5 where we read the words of Paul. Paul's talking to the Corinthians about the Macedonians. He's holding the Macedonians up as a positive example to the Corinthians. And he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Alright? In the Macedonians' mind, our first service is to God, and then after that, so much as 
the, the people of God, so much as, as they're lining themselves up with the will of God, then our service is to them too. But our service is first to God. I think Paul is very explicit here in making the difference. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us. Or I think perhaps more specifically is Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So I think Paul again there is being specific. When you render service to God, you're rendering it as to the Lord, not to man. Even man who is in the church. Why should we make this distinction? We should make this distinction because every one of us, I don't care how spiritual you are, I don't care how much you love Jesus, sooner or later, your desires will conflict with the will of God. Probably sooner rather than later, right? Sooner or later, your desires will conflict with the will of God. And then you must do what we all do, which is do battle with our own desires, putting to death our desires in place of the will of God, right? That's what we saw in the garden on the night of Jesus' arrest. There was this battle going on. Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus was doing battle with the flesh. And so in the same way, our desires conflict oftentimes with the will of God. And so if we're serving man, even Christian man, then sooner or later, we're going to be serving man's desires instead of the will of God. And you know what can happen so very often? If you don't make that distinction in your mind between serving God and serving the church, sooner or later, you will be rendering service to man and you'll convince yourself that you're serving God. When in reality, you're really serving sinful man. So we make that distinction. The object of missions is God, not the church. And lastly, we see the choice for missions. The choice for missions. The Spirit says in verse 2, set apart for me... Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this is the Spirit's choice. This is the choice of the church there in Antioch. Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas and Saul. They will be the missionaries that we send out. So let's talk for a moment about their choice in missionaries. Barnabas. We know about Barnabas. Barnabas was a top-notch person. He was given the name Encourager because he was such an encouragement to everybody around him. He was the one who had the spiritual foresight to insist that the apostles meet with Paul when they didn't want to meet with him. He was the one who loved the Antioch Christians before anybody else would. He was the one who who wisely gave away all of of his property in Cyprus and gave it to the church way back in chapter 4. Barnabas was a top-notch Christian, a top-notch leader. And then Saul, what do we know about Saul? Saul, of course, well, I don't know how you, I don't know how you top that. Paul was trained to the highest degree in the study of God's Word. There was no higher degree that he could have attained. He was diligent, he was intelligent, he was hardworking, he was faithful, he was dedicated. He was zealous for the Lord. He met Jesus Christ personally on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ personally selected him. He had the hand of God on him like no other human in history ever has. I think that it's an understatement to say 
that Saul and Barnabas were the two best ones that the church had. The two best leaders they had. And they're the ones that they're going to send out for missions. The best that they have is what they send out to the mission field. I wonder if, if that's how it would go today. If, if our church were at that point where we were sending people out to lost people, would we send the two best we had? This would be like a church today who uh, wanted to go plant a church in Mexico somewhere. And they said, well, okay, let's send our senior pastor and our associate pastor. Would that happen? You know what? I've been around the church my whole life. And I can tell you how virtually every church would think about that. You mean our senior pastor is leaving us to plant a church? Can you believe that he would abandon us in such a way as that? And yet the church in Antioch sends forth the best they have. That's how important missions is to them. You know what? When there's a task to do, the more important that task is, the more important it is that you have the best person doing that task. Isn't that true? Regardless of what you're talking about. The more important the task is, the more you want the best person on that task, right? You're having open heart surgery tomorrow. Somebody's going to slice you open and work around on your insides and sew you back up. Do you want the physician's assistant doing that? Now you trip on the front steps. Bang your head. You need two or three stitches up here. Do you care if the physician's assistant does that? The more important the task, the more important it is to have the right person at the task. The best that you have. This is how important the Antioch church saw world missions. This will take nothing less than our very best. I wonder if that is our attitude toward evangelism, toward world missions today. Let's send our best. You know what? It was God's. Because God sent His best to us. He didn't send His angel. He sent His Son.